Hi, I'm Marisa Janaku. And I'm Michelle Wungsumanavi. And welcome to By Association, a show where we talk about the connection between creative entrepreneurs and their collective drive to bring a product or brand with purpose to the consumer. A connection usually starts with a drink, and this is how we'll start our show. Sharing a bottle of wine or champagne, and understanding why this bottle is special to our guest. Welcome to a new episode of By Association. My name is Michelle Wongsmanawi. Uh, on my right, we have Maurice Ajanaku. And today we have a special guest, uh, Lisa Hogg. Hello. Hello, Lisa. <laughs> would you mind uh, describing yourself? Of how would you describe yourself? <laughs> how would I describe myself? Um, well, I think on my, my website that I'm just about to launch, I call myself a brand badass with a big heart and a big brain. Um, I'm South African born and raised, but a fake Dutch person, as I put it, because I've been in Amsterdam for over 20 years. And yeah, just spent my sort of, I guess, the last 21 years on in both advertising and brand roles. Tell us, well, how do you guys meet? When you, you know Lisa. Well, so. yeah, I mean, I, I, we were just talking about it just now. We, it was, it was a, it was a fiftieth birthday of someone we knew, and it was a garden, as I think we first met because I was working with, uh, with uh, John. Yeah, yeah, Maurice yeah. was working with my, well, my then husband, um, yeah. John, um, and yeah, that's, I think that was early days for, for your career, <laughs> as well. <laughs> when so. I just started, exactly. Yeah, and it was cool, and yeah, long I've, time ago. I've always, I think, we've held kept a bit of contact I followed you and I think you know it was really nice to ask you to join because because this podcast is about you know creative entrepreneurs about brand building and you know following your career from advertising into the apparel or really the shoe industry mm-hmm. and then now starting your your own company I think it's really nice to figure out or hear from you kind of how that how that growth for you was within the within the brand world you could say because mm. you started if I'm not mistaken, at, at uh, Strawberry Frog or, I mean, or in South Africa, actually. No, it started in South Africa, but more in design agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually where I met John. Yeah. Um, so more multidisciplinary design agencies. But then we moved to Amsterdam together. Um, and the design agencies were predominantly very Dutch at that point. So yeah. not being able to speak Dutch. Um, I actually had a, a strong preference for staying in design agencies rather than advertising. Um, but you had to speak Dutch, um, mm-hmm. so that limited me. So I, I actually started at TBWAH yeah. in the beginning, working on um, automotive clients. Um, that was your own company? Just no, 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 that's no. Uh, part of TBWA, a right. like big network, um, but yeah. it was a small division they had outside of their kind of uh, above, Am- above the line. In Amstelveen, right? Weren't they no, based out no, of there no, yet? No, it was on, on Stadtoderskade, okay. where, where the Heineken offices are yes. next to the Heineken experience yeah, yeah. now, yeah, yeah, yeah. we were there. Okay. Um, but that was 99 to late 2000, because mm-hmm. then the client moved to Paris. And that's um, after that, well, then I had my daughter, and then after a year at home with her, then I started in um, Blueberry Frog. Before it was... Before it was... Yes. Well, it's, it's, Strawberry Frog existed, but Blueberry Frog was the guerrilla marketing agency, because... Uh-huh. In 2002, Gorilla and kind of these sort of really disruptive ways of marketing, no one else was doing it. Um, people were still very stuck on TV at that mm-hmm. point. It's, a, it's 18 years ago, quite a while ago, <laughs> showing my age. 
Still very young, still very young. But we go before we go into that, we always start, of course, with a bottle of wine. Okay. And, and I remember when I texted you saying, Lisa, we need to, of course, start the conversation with a bottle of wine. Your uh-huh. reaction was basically... Yeah, I'm not drinking this year. <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking water and other stuff, but I'm not drinking alcohol. I committed to doing dry 2020. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as we know, looking at 2020, uh, 2020 has got fucking everything in it at this point (laughs) (laughs) except alcohol so and it's not lost on me that prohibition was big in the 20s um the 1900s so Mm -hmm. it's not lost on me that i'm kind of self-imposed prohibition but um if i had to bring a bottle it would definitely have been well i did bring a bottle but if i had to bring what i would drink before it would have been a bottle of red probably mielas rubicon from south africa okay it's a blend it's heavy i like robust red wines so I'm experimenting with you guys today. I bought a bottle of non-alcoholic red wine. Um, so I don't, I've never drank the brand before. Naturio, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but it's de-alcoholized. Everyone said non-alcoholic wine's going to taste like grape juice. I've had non-alcoholic um, kind of like a, a cava. Yeah. And it wasn't bad, but it tastes like apples, which I thought was weird. Um, it's like a cider kind of so, thing. Yeah, yeah but... Um, yeah, I thought we, we might as well give it a try. So we. Well, I'm curious as well. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever had non-alcoholic no. anything. Which, well, I mean, I've had non-alcoholic drinks. Yeah. <laughs> wow, strong work. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've had, so far I've had, I've been having non-alcoholic gin, which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then I found a really good non-alcoholic IPA and a white beer from Brunt. And why did you decide to go dry? Um, so I started last August doing new therapy. It's called somatic therapy. Mm -hmm. So it's got to do with your, your body and kind of, um, I hope my therapist doesn't hear this and think I've botched the explanation of it. But as you go through life, you, you obviously lock trauma in your body. Um, and it's a way of helping you unblock where you you've blocked yourself over the past with trauma or experiences etc to actually get yourself in full flow so you are i mean i always like to think i'm 100 percent myself but it's 100 percent pure flow so you are um really kind of connected to your appetite what you really want to do not ideas of what you think you should be doing or you should want to be doing so it's all around really getting to really know and understand yourself take good care of yourself um Mm -hmm. and as a result i already decided back in november um that i think i want to take the year and just be 100 percent lucid so that i can see when painful things or difficult things come up yeah how can i deal with them in a, a different way because um it's not like you know, just for the audience, I'm not an alcoholic, um, <laughs> but I am the girl who will take down a room of people with tequila um, at parties. <laughs> so um, it's it's just, so, and obviously, you know, sometimes when you're going through something, everybody has their vice that kind of wants, you know, numb things because yeah. you don't really want to deal exactly. with it. Yeah. Um, I'm quite excited about really dealing with shit. This and how's that been? I mean, because like Amazing. you said, 2020 has been a, how should we put it? A special year? I mean, January, I mean, every month has had, you know, a whole lot. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, I've just 
like you mentioned before, I've just started my new business, but I was employed in January um, mm-hmm. and I was unemployed by February. Yeah. Um, and so that, um, it's just been one thing after the other. And a lot of people are like, you chose the worst year. Um, and my retort is actually, I think I chose the best year. Focus because the lucidness, you know, like you said. My 15-year-old son said, geez, mom, if you don't drink now, you're never going to drink again. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, I've actually found it really easy. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I don't know if it'll be like, I'm not going to drink ever again, but I'll drink for a very different reason. Yeah. And I think I'll enjoy it much more. Yeah. And the necessity for kind of being excessive, I, I don't think I'll have no. any. I don't think I really had an appetite you don't really, before. You're not looking. You're not looking for that buzz and that morning, uh, <laughs> the morning feel. No, because you. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's different for everyone. I just feel like I've cheated myself out of a lot of moments and experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I just I think I actually think your forties are like you know anyone who's younger listening to this. It's getting old is a privilege. Not everybody gets it. Um, and the nicest thing about it is you just, if you really pay attention, you get to know yourself a hell of a lot better um, yeah. and you start to enjoying things the way you've probably always wanted to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's the right. pretty long answer to no, why it's, I'm it's, drinking No, it's a perfect answer, but I say, let's, <laughs> and, and let's I see if we I have grape juice. I haven't cheated so um, <laughs> at all. And my kids actually check on me every week. <laughs> really? You haven't again? No? No, I'm good. So let's see. Let's see how this goes. Doesn't look like grape juice, so that's already a good like start. Grape juice. That it actually, I mean, it smells like red wine, but with a slightly different something. You can smell there's definitely a difference. And you said the wine you would choose is is, is that South African wine? It's is a South African wine from. And, uh, and you have a connection with that place or or, or that winery, um, or is it purely just a wine that you've really? Come it was to love? a wine I discovered um, with John like twenty five years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it's just thank you. Um, it's just a really like full bodied blend mm-hmm. from quite a small vineyard. Um, I don't think they've never really allowed visitors called Mealust. Um, and I've tried different kind of blends and that from all over the world. It just remains like, it remains my, my go-to. Yeah. There's another one from an estate called Springfield in South Africa as well called Ancient Regime, which um, someone put, you know, put me onto about nine years ago, which is also pretty good. Um, and I just still, I do love South African wine still. Yeah. For sure. And right. I mean, I've tried, I think Chilean wine's really good. Um, Italian, I'm not always convinced. French, I'm, it's, I'm not a huge fan somehow, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, I don't know the specifics. I mean, Why? I'm not, just, I'm not a just, connoisseur, I no. just know what I like. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Okay. That's, that means that it's trial and error a lot. Yeah. Well, well let's well, try cheers, and guys. see that. Cheers. Don't hate me if it's awful. <laughs> Very fruity. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not juice, but it's juice. Yeah. <laughs> it's juice with a with a. Yeah. Little, it's weird. Yeah. That's a good break for today. Yeah, I just thought. I mean, otherwise, it's. Um, no, but I understand. You know, it really is more. It really is the reason why you bought the bottles. Really, a personal reason and. 
Yeah, I thought I'd still, even if I, it's not like something that's, you know, I know is amazing or whatever, yeah. but I yeah, thought yeah, it's, yeah. it's still, and I'm not shy about sharing stories like that. Yeah. Um, so I thought it's still a nice part of the There's trial and error, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's like, I guess that's also part of what test you do in learn. life and test and learn. Well, yeah, that even goes pro to what we're going to talk about later with <laughs> brands and stuff like that. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, going back to that, so Blueberry Frog, mm. you know, you were there and, 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 and it was the... You could say the heyday of guerrilla marketing, which basically is now just normal marketing mm, <laughs> has yeah. become. Yeah. Uh, what What was it there that you learned? What was a project that really you know stood out during your uh, time there? Well, there were. I mean, officially there were only four of us. Um, so the MD, two creatives. Um, I think two people that I think are both still in Amsterdam and quite well known. So Mark Chalmers and yes. Barnaby Irish. Mm-hmm. So they were like the two creatives um, on it, um, and then myself, and then I think there may be one or two other sort of accounts people in a way. But yeah. IKEA was a, a big client, um, and they did really cool things like um, set up a basically furnish a parking space in mm-hmm. Amsterdam to show like how you can actually use IKEA to really make yeah. a good livable space. So stuff like that, which isn't unusual now, but definitely was pretty pretty special then mm-hmm. um and <clears throat> i think i mean ikea was an interesting client so they did the whole i mean i'm gonna bastardize the the dutch <laughs> accent now but they did a grace mace gray mouse i can never oh, say it yeah. yeah like campaign for them where like everyone thought that anyone who shops at ikea then yeah was boring and dull mm-hmm. um and that that's actually not true so it was quite a um a fun you know campaign when other brands weren't necessarily doing stuff that was actually challenging who their target consumer was Mm -hmm. um but i think my best project which but i think basically strawberry frog won an account with mitsubishi motors Mm -hmm. and because i had a background of automotive they actually kind of stole me from blueberry frog and put me in strawberry frog but very quickly after that um blueberry frog was actually absorbed because they realized they didn't need a sister company to do it they would basically be pitching it all as as one collective um and i worked on a um supposedly a viral video campaign for mitsubishi motors on the evo um which is like their their petrol head car Mm -hmm. And we did this really culty piece of video that we filmed in London in a garage. It was kind of a little eyes wide shut feel. I still don't know how we got that through. <laughs> but <laughs> but they you were said like a super viral. 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 Did, yeah. Was that part of the pitch? And were you a bit kind of hesitant? I mean, or I mean, that's the thing. You cannot make something no. viral is not determined by the creative or the age or, or the company, right? Yeah, but I don't even think. Um, I don't even think people knew it was really when, when things were just starting to tip into um, things going viral because mm-hmm. obviously you, you needed a certain level of penetration on a digital landscape for things yeah. to really pick up at that rate. So this was really early days and I think it was, and I mean, I've, I've been the client for long enough now so I can say it, I think it was a client just hearing a buzzword and yeah. sort of throwing it into the, um, what I think they meant um, and I think why we got the piece of work through is I think they just wanted something more provocative um, because sometimes 
being getting something that actually goes viral is because you doing something that is like more ballsy or more edgy or unusual and then that's the nature of it going viral i mean there is no secret source no one knows how no. to do something that'll go viral it either i guess the sentiment of the people lightning in a bottle basically yeah. and it changes um, every time what yeah. goes viral i think is purely a, a sentiment or a feeling that people have at that moment and it's the state timing of mind, it's, it's yeah all that. totally so um but if I look back on how, um, and not uh, you know sort of in a judgy way, but the client was quite conservative. Mm. Looking back and actually seeing us getting that through, um, I was quite <coughs> surprised. So, and I enjoyed, I actually enjoyed that, even though um, automotive wasn't something that you know really got me excited. Yeah. The Evo campaigns were just. A, Can we still see it online anywhere? I, it's so long ago. I don't know, but I'll I'll go home and, and see if I can because I can't remember saying we had a really great director. We had quite a challenging budget because it was for like a digital video. It wasn't TV, mm-hmm. so there wasn't per se like a massive media spend behind it. Um, but it was also I think just a really interesting target consumer for them because this car could handle you know turns better than most big sports cars like supercars. So. Yeah. Um, I had some friends who were petrol heads that would get kind of very excited about it. So didn't didn't know enough <laughs> to be able to like contribute. Massively. Was it a global campaign or was it specific no, to Euro- a certain market? No, European. European. Europe. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. I think I'm pretty sure it was only European. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the clients I've worked with have been or brands. It's well global brands, but all yeah based for Europe. Yeah. Uh, Pan European or EMEA based. Okay. So. And then strawberry frog. So, so you were on that. You were in the agency side. Yeah. I think that's probably when you made the shift to what we dubbed the client side, if I'm not mistaken. Or yeah. So I was at strawberry frog from about 2002 to 2006, mm-hmm. um, and I worked on Mitsubishi Motors, Heineken, mm-hmm. um, European, like the Champions League stuff. Um, and then I was account director for their business with Onitsuka Tiger. Yeah. Um, and the last campaign that I worked on was the Made um, Made by Japan campaign, which mm-hmm. was a really strong one. Um, but I just got, yeah, at some point I just felt, um, and I mean, I'm going to be blunt, that's how people know me. I just felt like account service was a little thankless um, because you, you didn't really get to work. I think things have shifted a little bit, but you didn't get to really work on strategy. And like, I, I really, I yeah. love working on strategy. Like that's where I get, really excited um mm-hmm. the creative side is great as well i mean i'm my personality is like split in half one side's a little ocd and loves being organized and then the other half is creative yeah and for me strategy is getting the ocd side locked and loaded yeah so that you actually know what you're intending to do how you want things to follow through so i just missed that on an account side um you know, I was a mom at home. I didn't want to be a mom at work as well. You know, just kind of corralling and financing. And, and some people love it, but it just wasn't, it wasn't really exciting me. So that's when I, I left them to initially go and freelance for Nike and okay. their brand design departments. Yeah. Um, and that was, yeah, that was back in 2006. And brand design, what's that exactly? It's their Nike? internal creative department. Okay. So mixture of graphic designers, um, retail designers, like a lot of retail designers. It's really, and they do that internally. And they, the yeah. I mean, I don't know what they do now. It's quite a while mm-hmm. ago. But um, yeah, so it's basically for me, their internal agency. Yeah. Um, and I think the point was for me to come in and just help them 
get organized. Um, and yeah, it was a good experience. Um, I wasn't there for very long. I went to Converse like 18 months after that. Um, but it was a good experience to just start seeing what it's like to be inside a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the combination of the two, having worked agency side before, yeah. I've always said um, it makes you a better client yeah. for sure. Like you understand how to, well, at least for me, I understood how to respect the creative process, write a good brief mm-hmm. to start as well. Yeah. Um, let agencies do what you're paying them to do exactly. instead of trying to, you know, going there with a preconceived idea of exactly what you want the creative to be like, but actually give the creative space to yeah. breathe. And I think because of that, I've always <coughs> managed to have really, really positive relationships yeah. with my agencies. I can't think of one. I think it's also about challenging them. I, I've done the same thing from creative into yeah. client side. I think it's also being able to speak the same language, being able to challenge them at the same level mm-hmm. and therefore getting a better, sometimes a better result for both. Yeah, completely. Because I think they, um, I remember I worked with, um, when I was at Onitsuka Tiger, I worked with Blast Radius um, as the agency. I remember the MD and I were thinking about trying to pitch a, um, a keynote at Cannes for um, how not to be an arsehole client. Um, <laughs> because there are just so many really standout errors and issues that seem to, to happen um, because there's just not that... I think it's like everything in life. There's just not that mutual understanding of where each side's coming from because then equally when you're on the client side um i think i've had a pretty good experience on um on that part but you have to jump through hoops mm-hmm. on the client side as well and i think understanding that and for the agency to fully understand that and that there is just sort of more transparency i think it's always just made for a and just actually having a good time together yeah um, yeah. that I think had always changed everything for me. Yeah. And was your choice to work at Nike, was that also a brand that you admired and you, you um, I think it was really network driven. Mm-hmm. Someone needed some help. I wanted a new thing. Um, I mean, my, I will say my career is a mixture of, um, I mean, a lot of hard work, um, sort of really f- focusing on hard work, but then I think also network. Um, and I, I used to hate the idea of networking when I was younger. I was just like, ugh, don't, don't, now I'm a machine. <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, it was, I mean, if you're going to start on, on the brand side, yeah. starting with Nike sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? It's good. So you might as well have, I mean, not in a negative way, but baptism by fire. Yeah, know, yeah. Go, go into a big one. And what then, is it about networking that is so important now where you've changed your mind from a ugh to... A machine. Well, the the uh, started originally when just the whole idea of marketing yourself, and that was more internally, like mm-hmm. in, in companies. So, um, I I mean I started to identify from when I started at Converse. So that was two thousand and eight. I started to actually acknowledge the fact, like, oh, I actually I'm quite ambitious. Mm-hmm. It's not really something that I really clocked in myself. I mean, I think at that point I had a four and seven year old. So I'd, I'd probably been busy being, I'm a relatively young mom. So like yeah. I was probably busy being a mom rather than really getting to see where my career was going. Um, and I remember being frustrated by not progressing. Um, I'm also quite 
um, impatient, but it's also my superpower. Um, <laughs> Um, I make yeah, just making myself sound like a hot mess. Actually, um, <laughs> I'm ambitious. I'm impatient. No wonder I'm still single. Um, <laughs> um, but the I remember like just feeling a bit frustrated. And a guy that I worked with um, at Converse, um, he's a Timberland now, Jay Lodico, um, still like really tight friends with him. He just said, if you can't expect your managers or the people you report into to champion you mm-hmm. they should but it's not going to make all the difference no. you you have to put yourself forward and i think especially um as a woman mm-hmm. um we men and women function quite differently in that space and it's not good or men are just statistically more um kind of hardwired to to step into that space mm-hmm. um and it's not purely a feminist thing it's also just like the the hunter-gatherer kind of dynamics yeah. it goes way way back so you really have to if it doesn't come naturally you have to really learn that skill um and when i stopped being um defensive about it i realized i actually enjoyed it and what i love about it now is um it's the way you actually ultimately can collaborate the best and find the best people to collaborate with. Um, And whether that is from a, especially now with my own business, you know, a monetary benefit, that's not actually where I think I love it from um, because we never stop learning. You never know everything. And each time you are able to connect with a new interesting person, you, you learn, you're constantly learning. And then my, other big love is actually connecting other people to each other. Mm-hmm. So I'll have like I'll meet someone. I'm like, oh my god, you have to meet this person, and it's actually I say 95 percent of the time resulted in something. Yeah. Um, and I think it's so it's a combination of not being afraid to put yourself out there and market yourself, especially if you're in a company and you want to progress. And I mean, it's, there's a, an art to it, you know, it's not like, I think people often hear it and think it's, it sounds, it could sound obnoxious or that's not the point. No. Um, it's being well prepared. It's, it's, I mean, you have to deliver. Yeah. It can't be, mm-hmm. you know, built on a foundation of, of sand. Um, you still have to be, bless you, um, you still have to be really good at your job. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a learned skill. Um but it's one that I'm, I'm really grateful I have now. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, so that skill got you, I suspect, because Converse, of course, sits within Nike, got you into... Yeah, so into, someone into that I'd worked Nike, with previously exactly. was at Converse and said, would you be interested? Uh, and so it's that connection again that, you know, by association... <laughs> if you, you, go, through, if you yeah. go through my career, it's definitely been... And I remember when I got hired at... Um, well, officially ASICS, but it was... To, at that point to look after Onitsuka Tiger I remember the woman that hired me said I've never met anyone with a network like yours <laughs> she's like everyone I asked about you know asked about you was yeah. like super positive and um, yeah. so I'm I'm very grateful for it but I, I also mean it's it's not like a superficial connection for me I mm-hmm. think I, I really do believe in kind of that broader community of people and connecting yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's how I ended up going over to Converse. And Converse as a brand was much more my speed. Um, that's fast-paced. Well, um, 
more just a little bit of rock and roll. So I'm less athlete, more rock and roll. <laughs> so um, even though everybody, you know, everyone with a body is an athlete. Um, and it was also quite small um, mm-hmm. at that point. So I think I was employee number 20 for the European office. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think they're significantly bigger now. Yes, they so, are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And what did you do at Converse? Um, basically like a, a brand manager role. Okay. Um, and I started very specifically with the task of looking after Foot Locker Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, which at that point was the biggest key account um, for Converse globally. Okay. Um, they were doing some serious business with them. And um, the interesting thing is that obviously never had to look after a retailer. That, again, was baptism by And what fire. does that involve, looking after a retailer? So is that really... Well, the business was significant. So mm-hmm. they did bespoke campaigns like for Footlocker Foot, Europe. For Footlocker. Okay. I mean, they were just starting. So when I joined, they just started. Um, I think it was the first exclusive silhouette that they had with the retailer um, okay. and for Europe only, um, which did amazing business for probably about five years for them. Um, so it was working with them on finding strategies where, because obviously it's a challenge, you've got to bring the two brand DNAs together, Yeah, which is really, I mean, and I can still, that's 2008, I can still remember. It's kind of the, maybe I shouldn't quote it, I'm probably not allowed to, but the, the mission of Foot Locker and then taking the mission of Converse and then bringing them together in yeah. a way that you are still going to be successful, but you, you're not diluting, because if you're not careful, you dilute the, mm-hmm. the footwear brand yeah. and the kind of the, the retailer brand um, supersedes. And that's not the point because the consumer doesn't know that. Yeah. The consumer will see a Converse campaign in a retail store. And consider it. And it's a Converse, Converse campaign. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not the retailer campaign. It just happens to be in the, that retailer environment. So it was working with looking at their kind of key, con- their target consumer, um, the Converse target consumer, trying to find what the sweet spot overlap was. Yeah. Um, How do you do that? By numbers? By looking at numbers? Or no. No, I mean, I'm... Feeling or? Yeah. I mean, it's just basic, intrinsic, just looking at... Um, it's interesting because I know now data is kind of everything. Um, I do think it's important, mm-hmm. but I'm... I'd say the way I operate, I'm I'm way more instinctual than than data driven because I think if you really just look at the qualitative nature of things, numbers can be can be helpful for sure, but in very specific contexts. Right. I think if you look at the qualitative natures of t- uh, target consumers, and then you try and overlap them and see like where is that tribe that you're going to go after. Um, and the interesting thing is with Footlocker, is you were talking to a kid at a big store outside the Duomo in Milan, mm-hmm. but then their most profitable store was in Le Halle in Paris. That's a significantly different kid. Yeah. Um, so trying to find, so you, you're bringing together so much. Um, but I think, I mean, and then it was just really solid, which I think my client, my agency background helped me because mm-hmm. it was actually proper client management, making them feel like they heard you know, being transparent with what you're spending on their business, all these sort of things, because the otherwise the relationship can be pretty. With Foot Locker, yeah. you're talking about Foot Locker yeah. being that client exactly. of yours in a sense. Yeah. So it's kind of it's interesting because you're in a brand, but you're actually almost functioning like yeah. a, an account director again. Um, but I think we, I mean, I the way I experienced it, we built a really positive relationship 
um, we were very open with each other. It was very collaborative. Um, and I actually enjoyed it. And it was, it was a really good experience of really understanding how that landscape works. Um, and that, and a lot of the learnings were transferable to, to other dynamics. But I was really brought in to focus only on that. But then I very quickly was given the JD group um, in the UK as well, because that was okay. also run centrally. Yeah. Was actually doing a good job in Foot Locker. Let's, let's get it to do that as well. Because um, <laughs> this was the moment that JD was also expanding within Europe. Yeah. Um, no, before. Oh, before. Actually, even. before. So, yeah, I've actually watched... That's been interesting to watch over time because when I worked on Foot Locker Europe, they were the only retailer that crossed borders. Yeah. And within less than 10 years, the landscape was completely different. Mm -hmm. So you would have Foot Locker, but then I'd have to know all the other retailers in the other markets. So Italy was AW Lab. Like so I, had to, I had to know exactly what was going on there. So I had to know the local competitors yeah. in the other markets. Um, but then I'd say probably... Four, four to five years after that, that's when JD started to yeah. go into other markets and. And is it important? It so knowing, so going the four years back. Yeah. Would you then? Uh, would there be one European kind of campaign you you do with Footlock, or would you have to specify no, to localize one. it? Okay, no, we do, one. Have to do one. But yeah. you have to ensure that the one you do hits all the marks on all the local yeah, kind of nuances. But Foot Locker was pretty, I think they they were pretty grounded in who their target consumer was. And they, that consumer showed up in all their key territories. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we just had to, to do that. But, I mean, I think one of the shortest time frame for briefing to execution um, campaigns um, with them was massively successful in Italy, Germany, and the UK. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is it is possible um, to find that that sort of alchemy of, of bringing things together to make sure that you can be successful in multiple markets. But okay. I think that's what I've been doing pretty much my whole career now. I've been yeah, working yeah. across Europe the whole time. Yeah, because so, after Converse, you went to Onosukatai. Essex, yeah. Essex, so, sorry. So it was, yeah, primarily to be head of brand for um, Onosuka Tiger. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting because we actually um, were able to deliver campaigns that we use globally mm. um, because we just built a great relationship with office in Japan. Um, and, I mean, even though kind of reporting into someone in Kobe, yeah. Um, for approvals on campaigns, but we actually delivered the campaigns out of Amsterdam. Um, and that was a really cool experience. Was it challenging as well? Because, I mean, uh, the Japanese culture is mm. different. Did you have to readjust how you went about? Because uh, you could say that, you know, the, the brassness that you have, was, yeah. that, was that accepted on, uh, in, in Japan? Or did you slightly have to change it for that, for, um, for, for that culture? Well, it just makes me think of, of some, you know, of, of a stance that I had then on, um, and I think it was around, I wasn't, I didn't have as many tattoos then as I have now, but I had some. And uh, there was something around, you know, when I go to the office in Kobe, I need to um, be mindful of my tattoos. Mm -hmm. And I said, but I'm the head of marketing for a lifestyle brand in Europe. This is who I am if I'm going into someone's home yeah. and they find tattoos offensive then that's a different that's a different point of view for me because then I will be more respectful and I will wear kind of a long sleeve 
But in the business dynamic, we need to all appreciate each other's culture. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be blatant, and I'm always I'm always very respectful, even though I'm provocative at the same time. I think respect and approaching things like that with emotional intelligence is really important. Um, I probably didn't swear as much um, when I was in meetings in, in Japan um, comparatively to kind of some other experiences. So I probably did adjust myself in a way, but I think in a way um, you have to be smart on, if you want to get your point across, you need to do it in a way that your audience are going to understand mm-hmm. you. Um, and you can't just, I guess there's a maturity thing in there of, maintaining certain things that are important to you on a personal level, but then it's also being intelligent enough to know how to handle the room. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that that was a balance. Respect but I, goes both ways. That's also what you brought forward. Is, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the I also had the joy of working with probably quite a, um, how do I put it, um, quite a different Japanese lady. I mean, she was a single mom of two kids. You don't meet many divorced women that mm. work in Japan so she was I think quite an interesting example um and her name was Misa so it was the Misa and Lisa shows which was kind of funny um and then the hilarious thing is my boss um, at that point was Pasha and her counterpart in the US was Natasha so it was Misa and Lisa and Pasha and Natasha it was kind of ridiculous um side note um should have had your own logo yeah exactly but um no, I think from a, a business point of view, I mean, the social dynamic in Japan was different. Um, that's where, what I found harder. Meeting rooms I could handle. Yeah. The social, the social aspect was different. Um, give an example. What was... I've got to think, like, you know, I'm always, like, <laughs> always say things that I'm... Well, usually the person that says things that no one else in the room will say. Um, I mean, I had a moment where we were out for dinner and then there were drinks afterwards and I was told to get into a cab and go back to the hotel because the men were going for drinks. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, it would have been much more painful for me if my US counterpart, who was this huge tree of a man, didn't actually get in the cab with me mm-hmm. um, and go back because he, he was like, that's mortifying. Um, yeah. And it is, I appreciate it's a cultural thing, but it's still, you know, as a, especially as a woman like me, it's, that's not the fun part of it. Yeah. I mean, cultures, cult, cultures are important, but the borders are becoming less and less important. And then and, and you go cross board, they ask you to work there, then yeah. you should have been more open for that. Yeah. And I, but the, the thing, I think the thing that I've always tried to be very mindful of, um, and not get too focused on, oh, it's difficult, you know, it's really difficult for me. I also know that my male colleagues mm-hmm. were sometimes, in, you know, put into the sort of scenarios or positions that they, they didn't really enjoy. So it's yeah, just, yeah. it doesn't mean it's just, it's just tough for women. It's also tough for men, depending on what your sensibilities are and your stances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I do appreciate that it's cultural, um, but it, yeah, it didn't make it easy. Easy. No, so. But then you focused, I guess, fully on the brand and... and yeah, I mean, I was there to do a job, you know, yeah. so... Um, yeah, I didn't, I mean, I didn't let it derail me, mm-hmm. for sure not, so... And what was it that you focused on during your time at uh, ASICS was the first day? Yeah, so... I mean, what was the focus there and, 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 and was it a challenge or did you enjoy it, what you were busy doing there? Mm, well, I think that one was the, the business had lost quite a lot of traction, 
um, they'd kind of kind of really gone up, and then they yeah, like they declined. Yeah, they they were especially because they had a massive business in France mm-hmm. on a very specific shoe, um, and then that started to decline over a period of like four years. So it was basically to um, really get under the skin of where are these sort of um, <coughs> Well, who, who's the, the consumer for a start? Because yeah. that, that wasn't clear um, either. And I don't think you, you don't need to spend an exhaustive amount of time. Um, we did work with, um, you probably know him, with Jason Fulton. Yeah. Um, so we did really great, again, qualitative. I'm clearly a fan of qualitative <laughs> consumer work. Um, Shout out to Jason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love Jason. Um, so we really got under the, the hood of what that was for, but it wasn't pure. The, the great part about that, which you don't always get to experience in every brand, it wasn't only for the marketing work, it was also for the product. So when we would sit in workshops, it would be the product and the brand. I mean, we were a small team. I'm yeah. making it sound like it was massive. All in all, product and marketing, we were 12 people. Um, but a great team, such a great team at that point. And I think um, everybody was just really excited. Guys that were, like the product team were, um, you know, a mix of men and women, but were just really geeked out on detail. And yeah. I mean, nothing is a bigger gift than working on a Japanese brand when you geek out on detail because yeah. the heritage of the brand is beautiful, um, how it started, and then just the little Easter eggs that um, Onotsuka-san put in products from the start, yeah. and then how you could kind of pull those back in. Wow. So, And then also to really work with the, um, the Japanese teams to understand what a gift it is to be Japanese, especially mm-hmm. in that sports lifestyle, fashion, or whatever, because it's just, I mean, for me, it, like at on certain things it doesn't get cooler than japan and that was i guess one of the main things you did made in japan is what you said so it's it's all about bringing that japanese into the brand or so they were comfortable with the, the made made of japan because that was um aesthetics so it was vinyl toys it was yeah. like bento box things it was sort of those aesthetic things um when we were working on it it's having japanese models mm-hmm. it's using kanji or i'm using like hiragana and kanji like in it's being obviously an identifiably japanese um and so i think we we try to work on that um we did a beautiful collaborative campaign with a design duo in tokyo called studio nam nam and they did this beautiful artwork where they would kind of explode a scene and then photograph it, but everything would be hung on nylon guts. Mm. Um, so we came up with, it was like a triptych of three scenes, um, but we built it all real time. Yeah. It took 72 hours to build it. Um, and wow. it was just all beautiful details. And it was really scary though, um, when we were basically in the 11th hour of building the set um, outside about an hour outside of Tokyo in a big warehouse. Um, and um, there was an earthquake, oh. which again, side note, but that was wild. Um, <laughs> I was just like, Oh, holy shit. If that all comes crashing down, we are screwed. Yeah. Um, but it was really, um, I was really proud of the work that we, we did as a team um, from the agency side to the product side. 
we really started to invigorate and get um, because interesting Essex is such a product innovation machine. I, mm-hmm. I had the privilege of going to the um, the science center in Kobe, yeah, which made me feel like I don't know if you guys have watched The Incredibles. Um, no. Um, the, but the animation the animation yeah, yeah. yeah but like Edna like it's like where they go to get their suits made yeah, that's yeah. what I felt like I was stepping into <laughs> and they have um, at that point it was like 85 scientists that would work on everything and wow. when you heard the stories of how they developed um, apparel um, for the French Federation um, like the Athletics Federation um, one French athlete made a, a joke of they, seriously they measure everything um, so you have, you know, this team and they just, they geek out on detail. So being able to take that sort of DNA of the brand and then start bringing it to new lifestyle products. Cause we, we were developing products out of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So lifestyle products, um, but then the campaign. So just all felt like so cohesive where in other brands and not that that's a bad thing. It's just the way it works. Um, you get the product and then you create the campaign where this our little sort of team was working on all the things together at the same time. Um, And then the other really exciting thing was um, resurrecting the Essex gel um, um, product, which was, had kind of gone really quiet, but was so sought after by sneakerheads. Yeah. Um, the original collab, I think the first collaboration they ever did was with Putter mm-hmm. back, like back in the early days. So yeah. Putter and Soulbox were the first two. Um, and then we basically put a, well, my boss and one of the product leads put together um, a proposal for us to really ramp it up. And it was going to be the 30th anniversary of um, Jalad 3, which is my favorite one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to actually work on campaigns uh, that so we i guess in a nutshell the great thing about that job was we were really able to take a bigger position from a global yeah. point of view on both products and marketing yeah. on this like little brand that could yeah so and how do you talk about sneakerheads right so uh, what's your view on that whole sneaker culture and that whole sneaker stock exchange if you want to put it that way where it's become very much a kind of a, a commodity driven uh, a world in some in, in some ways how how do you see that do you do you see that as a positive thing or a negative thing um i mean i'm probably influenced by the sneakerheads who i've worked with where you know reselling was the absolute devil you were a purist and you were a collector mm-hmm. um and that was it um and i like that i mean i think i i like things where there's a purity to it um the reselling thing i never spent a lot of time there i mean at the, when we were doing launching quite a few we were one of the only brands at that point that was still creating lines outside of um any of the sneaker doors, um, even Colette in Paris when yeah. it still existed. Um, and there was a whole, you know, learning about the whole thing of putting your name down, the, the store owners knowing exactly who the resellers were, would let the guys sit there for three days and then not let them in when the stores open. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty hardcore. Um, I guess what I, th- what I think about it is this, it seemed at that time, so that was 2012 to like 2015, um, a very tight family. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of shifted in, 
you know, Soulbox doesn't belong to Soulbox anymore. Um, you know, that's all really shifted. Only some of them have kind yeah. of really kept the stores have kept to the the purity. But then they they've been other big launches, um, and it's. I don't know, sneaker culture has like expanded more. So the, the scarcity thing has gotten bigger. Scarcity, it's becoming a lot more commercial. commercial yeah. Scarcity than, than, back in the day was 12 pairs per store. Yeah. When you talk about people like Ronnie Feig and they, you know, I, I still remember he was, um, G from Pata still, I think, um, commented online about it. He was really unhappy because Ronnie Feig said he was the, the guy that made Asics cool again. Um, but he also made a shit ton of money out of them um and for me when you're saying you're going to do a drop of ten thousand pairs yeah that's not that's not cool and scarcity like no. anymore that's not really Special. um niche collaboration so yeah i think it's it's just way more commercial but i'm i'm not a sneakerhead i can't talk to like what the culture's like now mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel like it is the same as it was like a, a decade ago yeah yeah and there i get because you know, at, uh, at, at ASICS, you, you talked about uh, uh, the product being developed, but then the brand needed a bit more push. Yeah. When is it, when is it about the product or when is it about the brand or is it, does it have to come hand in hand? It's, it's, uh... Well, a decade ago, product was still king, yeah. for sure, especially if you look at a consumer behavior point of view. Um, the brand could be cool, but the product has to be banging, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at research over the last two to three years, especially when you're looking at the, the rise of the belief-driven buyer. Yep. Um, so this whole shift of people being much more engaged with the brands that they're buying. Um, and that's obviously not the point we're talking about. The, the point there was in that research, you were starting to see that it was starting to level off. It was 50% product, 50% brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really starting to... Well, where we at now, I'd say it's probably 50-50. Yeah. Back then, I'd say it was probably still like 65-35, um, So you're Because the thing is, if you looked at... Um, I mean, Essex has always been a solid brand, but um, the feedback I'd get from consumers when I worked there was that it didn't have enough personality. Mm-hmm. And the sneakerheads had really loved Essex shoes, just loved it because the, the, the way they were designed and built. Um, yeah. And I mean, I... Like I was so lucky. I got to meet um, Kayano um, and Matsui-san. Uh, Matsui was the, the uh, original designer of um, Jalat 3, yeah. or the Jalat 3, Jalat 5. <clears throat> they still sit in their very normal cubicles in the office in Kobe. I mean, they, if you look at Japanese sensibility compared to like, you know, for, for me, Kayano-san and Matsui-san are the, the Tinker Hatfields of, mm. of Essex. Yeah. You would never know. No. I mean, so it's really interesting. But no, I think brand and product now, it's, it's, you, you have to, both have to, you know, punch it the same way. Yeah. But you did make a move then to, I would say, a brand that was more about the brand and, and, and the sustainability than, and correct no, there was one wrong. in between. There was one in between. There was Vans in between. Vans, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Before, yeah, before I went to Tom's, <laughs> I was at Vans for, yeah, I was only 18 months, but it, that was... Um, the job was great, um, but I was living away from my kids at that point, and that wasn't sustainable. And where were you in? I was in, 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 base it's, in well, Italy. Well, um, working in Switzerland, living over the border in Como, in Italy. Wow, and missing your kids. And missing my kids, yeah. something horrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I so hear that. yeah, no, it wasn't. Gave it a shot. Bad idea, but we live and learn. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, that's that's when I stepped into 
action sports for a, a hot minute. Um, that's a whole... <laughs> yeah, well, it's vans, oh. skateboarding. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a whole whole different ball game. And why, how, well, let's talk about, I mean, you were yeah. there for a brief moment, but I, yeah. you know, looking at you now, it apparently made a big impression on you when you were there and, and what you, yeah, I mean, I like, you gained. I like the brand. I mean, obviously, like originally, I mean, belongs to VF, but originally a family-owned business. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Van Duren, the, the son of the founder, still actively works in the brand, has his office, um, super warm, like I think really nurtures this whole family vibe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I went <laughs> like our action, the action sports team reported into me and being a, a woman in action sports. Um, I mean, I was there for a short while, but I'm sure there are other women that are way better versed in the experience than I am, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, I'm, I don't shy away from a challenge. You didn't pick up skateboarding? I did. I learned how to skateboard and I, I did it in a dress to prove a point oh, really um yeah i'm not i'm like i'm shit i'm not any good i was <laughs> i was so impressed that i was even moving with my feet on the board um but no it was a good experience i mean i really liked the brand i was able to work on house of Bands london which is an incredible space mm-hmm. um just like such a cool idea so beautifully done um and it was really interesting to get a look into behind the scenes on skateboarding yeah. um it's an incredibly um, dedicated, but I find quite elitist <laughs> group. Um, oh, really? Like, if you're in, you're in. But if you're not in, you're not in. Um, and it's interesting because they are, like, just by nature, like, really rough and ready. Mm. And um, and my son skateboarded for a while, and I remember seeing, like, a guy in his 30s sort of completely intervene for my son when some other kids were kind of, there's always this war between skateboarders and rollerbladers. Yeah. And the rollerblade, the rollerbladers were flexing on my son, who at that point was quite little. Yeah. And this like, guy who must have been in his thirties just skated up and like got right in between. So it's 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 a beautiful thing. Um, so it's it's not really a bad thing. It was just really interesting to see the kind of dynamics um, yeah. around around that. But very brand that's very rich in heritage. Um, being, I'd say, quite true to itself along the way um, as well, um, being pretty focused and just also a good example of a company who realized that the product that was really killing it for them at that point was starting to decline. So they really, you know, the seed scaling and maximizing principle, mm-hmm. they they did that and they they basically built their business up again. I mean, I'm not sure kind of what their numbers are like now yeah but even in 18 months um it feels like it was longer because i felt like i learned a lot um about the company and their products um and i am a fan of their products i think it's i'm I'm definitely more of a just by style wise i'm probably even lean even more to vans um but i'm more like a converse vans girl than but I, i do still have a few favorite pairs of Essex, so <laughs> one in particular from Bates in the US. But yeah, you said that that uh, Vans, you know, kind of remained small. Was that was that key to the success of that company as well to not become kind of kind of get overtaken by the bigger? Oh no, I mean they're players? big. Oh, they're big. No, they're big. They're big, but there's I think they try and work on a culture of cool. yeah. of like they do see themselves as a as a family business. No, okay. but they're big. They, yeah. I mean, I don't know what their revenue is now. They 
They make dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, if they still receive like support from a, from the culture, but they're also like a massive company. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's finding right balance. So. It's a people. Like it's a people thing. I mean, you don't get it right, but if you get 80% of the right kind of people that really believe in the brand and are really connected with it, um, and they, they're a very events-based company as well, um, which I can't imagine it must be pretty challenging for them right now, but a lot of what they do is is grounded in actually collective events. So House Events London isn't just a space in London. It's also an events kind of strategy that they do everywhere mm. um, skateboarding is obviously all about events and yeah. you know they've sponsored a lot they they look after that community quite a lot so i think mm-hmm. it's that engagement level um i had the same at tom's where as a company you really need to make sure that you're connecting your people with the purpose of your brand mm. and then that's what keeps people engaged and you can't there's no sort of approach where you think okay if, if we do that the culture will stay you've got to embed it in the people so that it is basically a heartbeat that kind of goes goes through it the whole time um but i think still they've i think they've got a lot of le- um, leaders that have been in the company for quite some time which you can look at it from both sides right you also want to get newness and different blood coming in now and then to sort of shake things up a little bit but from a cultural point of view having a few pivotal people in the company to to make sure you're keeping it in check um and the thing the thing is for them they've had good fortune of probably maintaining their numbers um as long as they maintain their numbers the the holding company is not gonna start getting too involved and then you can still have that backup but maintain the culture And how were they able to kind of maintain their, how do you put it, uh, kind of the skateboarding community still embracing them whilst, you know, growing and being more commercial and, you know, being open to, uh, to a lot more wider group? Um, I think just being mega consistent with their skateboarding community. Mm-hmm. So um, because when I was there, I guess it was just when... Because, you know, as an example, Nike got really into sort of skateboarding at one point SB, with SB. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people were because skateboarding was starting to feel a bit more of a, a fashion statement, not yeah. just a, an action sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an interesting time to be able to look at it and think. And it, it, you can look at it from all topics. You can I've, I've maintained from a purpose point of view. How many brands are going to be involved in purpose when it's no longer a consumer benefit like how how like um authentic are you being in that space mm-hmm. um a lot of people are saying now on different social impact issues brands will get on board are they going to be walking the walk five years down the line yes. when it's not topical yeah so i think with skateboarding it was like to see with more competitors who was actually gonna um maintain um but i think with vans, they just remain consistent, but they and they know how to show up authentically yeah. in that space. So, on one hand, yeah, they were being commercial in another space, but they weren't letting that commerciality influence, influence the tone of how they showed up at skateboarding events. So and they weren't trying to make those mess. They were keeping those authentic and niche, and dedicated to the skate community. And they support the skate community. Um, they yeah. the way they've supported their skaters. Um, the way they do hold events so I think con- consistency and authenticity is kind of 
how they maintain and they didn't let one permeate the other. No. And it's also about remembering what made them big and, and you remember who your friends are. Your friends it's like are yeah. mm-hmm. You remember who was there for you in the early days. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I mean, at least that would be my point of view. That's how they've maintained. And I mean, they've got the icons of skateboarding that are still people like Tony Alva that are still totally embedded in their business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they've just, they've maintained throughout. Mm-hmm. So cool. And then from Vans, you moved to Tom's. Then I went to Tom's. Yeah. Which I mean, in Europe, I, you know, the question is, they weren't as big yet. I mean, but what I was saying is you moved to a brand in my view, that was more, more on a brand and, and sustainability and, yeah. and, and a cause than actually the product, the product. is where the focus was. Yeah. Um, Completely. Mean, so yeah. I was after Vans, I was ready to give footwear a break. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a bad thing, but I just, I, I like change. Um, but the positioning of the company was something that I really um was interested in and it was something that i'd been thinking about weirdly enough since 2006 which is actually when they started um i thought it would be great to be able to do my job um and actually do something good at the same time um but i will say yeah the they obviously social impact social sustainability super important um and much bigger than the um the product proposition but just looking like how things have kind of unfolded over time your product proposition needs to be again like i said before you need to they both have to be running at the same pace in in my opinion um because especially in sustainability um your story is not only going to sell products um, I maintain if if that story is going to be the key thing to sell the product, Tom's would probably be probably four times as big as they are now. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's evidence of um, the story is wonderful and it can get people, you know, capture people's imagination yeah. and make them love the brand. But if you don't have the the product to to back it up, um, it's it's not going to be the sole reason someone's going to buy your brand. What do you no. mean? It's like the design of the product or like the yeah, the, just the. the trend quality all all these sort of things and they um like tom's has always been known for the alpagata which is the summer espadrille yeah so alpagata is a argentinian name for a, an espadrille um and it's a great shoe and it does really well in summer but then it it, it, it can be challenging other times of the year but also if it's not if so that's what i was talking about with vans they saw the shoe that they were making the most business with at that at one time starting to decline. Mm-hmm. So they looked at one of the other icons and then started to really make like seed um, that into the market and just start getting people interested in that. Um, and it takes time. Yeah. This is one of the challenges that I've had in my job um, a lot in getting leadership to understand, you know, it takes like, you know, three to four seasons from you starting to like really seed it back yeah. in because you need to get the retailers on board, you get, yeah. need to get consumers. So it's a it's a very feasible construct, but it takes time. Um, so you have to have a bit more diversity in your in your collection so that you can flex as trends yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. and they I mean trends change much quicker now than they did when I first started in footwear, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean it's it's definitely one silhouette doesn't stay on top 
for as long as it used to. No, no, no. And Tom, so you're saying about diversification, they, of course, I don't know if this is still the case, but they, of course, they created sunglasses. Yeah, and I mean, their footwear was more diverse than people know as well. I mean, they, they quicker than I've seen other footwear brands do it. They had, um, they did winter boots, um, other mm. kind of types of sandals. Um, but because of the business model, the challenge with Tom's is because of the business model, um, your marketing budgets are pretty challenged. Yeah. Um, and because of that, you don't have upper funnel media spend. So it's the whole thing of if a tree falls in the wood and no one's there, you know, does it make a noise? Uh, so it's, they, they did a good job at doing that, but because of the, the business model, it's just difficult to, to really get the awareness out there of both the story and the, the product. Yeah. So, um, How do you but, do it without media budget? Without but you're, you're a big driver of that, I would say. Yeah, but that was keynote. my job. <laughs> yeah, that, you, you, you were the top of the funnel awareness in a lot of places, right? Well, I that's mean. why, yeah, if, if, I mean, we didn't do any kind of conference that sort of requested us, but that's why we, we saw every opportunity as a way to raise awareness because the good thing about Tom's is I've worked for, obviously we've been talking about like so many footwear companies Tom's is the only one where I'd ha hear consumers say, I remember the first pair of Tom's I bought. Hmm. I'd never heard that at any of the other companies. People remember hearing the story and that the story immediately made them go buy a pair of shoes. Um, but that was the early days when there were no other purpose-led businesses. Yep. So then Tom's was the only one. Um, we have this slide that we used to reference of the difference between purpose-led businesses in 2006 versus now um, and I've, at least about a year ago we knew that Tom's had inspired at least 200 businesses to do a similar thing direct you have the founders of the businesses saying I saw I saw what Tom's yeah. was doing I wanted to do the same thing and not only in footwear in all sorts of um, product offerings but I think you um, our social uh, organic social actually did pretty well for us so we worked, especially in, on the European content, we worked really hard on figuring out what the story, the right story was. And it was a journey as well because um, you had to be really careful of not making your marketing feel exploitative yes. when you're a, a business focused on social impact. Um, so early on when I started working there, there were certain images I didn't want us to actively use anymore because you couldn't have a beneficiary child smiling holding a tom's flag it, um, for me it felt wildly inappropriate and you're not a non-profit you're a for-profit business that is trying to create good in the world yeah. which is not something to shy away from it was really important to to be that but then rather elevate people that are working kind of in that space um, but uh, we did work a lot on trying to innovate both how we communicated but then also where the the actual impact investments went as well, so um, I think when you don't have a lot of budget, you just have to be very nimble. You you have to really focus on powerful storytelling, um, which is something which is sort of very dear to me. Um, I think when you can tell a good story, then you do get people to listen. And yeah, you can get you can stretch them past the two or eight minutes that you might have them um, have their attention for. So um, it's tricky, but it's not impossible. It just depends on what growth you want, but that's a whole different discussion <laughs> for me. But you went the, the so so 
Tom's being a purpose-led mm. brand, right? So, so it had a certain purpose. And you said, it's, you know, you inspired 200 other brands to become purpose-led. Mm. I mean, nowadays it's become more and more important for a brand to have a purpose more than just profit, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and why do you believe that that's the case? Is it, is it purely to do with the generation now, the, the, the Generation Z, X, whatever, you know, and, and then what the expectations are? Or is it just a completely different... I think it's a reasoning? responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it can't all be about capitalism. And that, that's kind of my, what I was alluding to with growth. Um, people say, like... The response can be, well, we have to do things like that because we have to achieve our revenue growth. Um, I think businesses really need to relook revenue growth. Does it always have to be plus double digits year yeah. on year, year on year? Like, why can't it just be a successful business who looks after their employees and, and grows at a, a sustainable manner in a way that the, the people in the planet need? So I think it's when I first started engaging with it, it was because it was starting to come up in social consciousness yes. and with consumers and I spent a lot of time um, looking at what consumers were saying. So did a lot of did some really interesting research across Europe in UK, Germany, France, Sweden, and Greece. Um, and um, I mean, the Swedes were probably the most outspoken um, on how you should show up and and really um, contribute. Um, but you you kind of saw it coming up everywhere but it, I think it just gave me pause for thoughts on a, a personal point of view on um, it shouldn't just be a, a profitable payoff um, that I mean it should the motivation shouldn't only be that although it is because if you look at Patagonia as an example yeah, yeah. every time they've done something really maybe risk-taking or something that's really core to their DNA um, that looked risky, their intention was not to grow revenue, but they grew revenue. Yeah. So it's super interesting that when you really show up in that kind of really powerful, well-intentioned way, that you know, if you're going to get into all manifestation, if you put it out <laughs> into the universe, the universe is going to respond. Um, yeah. But then you need to do that in you know you need to have integrity when you when you do that so i think yes there is a consumer expectation um there is a potential commercial benefit but i think if we all just look at what's going on in the world right now i would like to think businesses should just start thinking of um you know what what is your legacy yeah do you do you really just want to be about um, you know, earnings for shareholders, or or do you want to mean more? And you can. I mean, it's um, Tom's is the, my experience in Tom's just shows you you can do both. You can absolutely yeah. do both, yeah. but it just you have to run your business differently. And is the would you say globalization and and and, and the new digital world, social media, has really opened the fact that you know it's opened it up. People are now more. You're able to find out exactly who are the execs in a company. And understand if it really, you know, supports... Uh... I don't think people were, but they are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think even the last two weeks yeah. has changed that. It's kind of, you know, we believe in this. Many of my, my friends who are people of color are like, show us the receipts. Yeah. Let's see your board. Exactly. Um, and I mean, I've been quite, you know, even thinking about this podcast, like 
I'm a white woman and it's not been easy for me in the corporate world. I don't even want to think what it's been like for people of color. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I think now people are going to start getting more engaged on do these companies, and it, this has been coming for a while, consumers connecting with brands who reflect their principles and what they believe in, that that was a trend. I think the volume is just getting turned up. Um, mm. 2020 for me is resetting everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, I'll at least I, I really, really hope so. <laughs> and is that also core to to what you do now? So, so you left Tom's. Yeah. And you set up uh, Brave. Mm-hmm. Mama Wolf. I yeah. You, yeah. Our title is founder and Mama Wolf. Founder um. and Mama Wolf, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, um, because you you call you the Wolf Pack is yeah is what you call yeah your, no. well, wolves are. A thing that I yeah exactly. mean a lot to me. I have two wolf tattoos. I wear a wolf ring all the time. So yeah, and then but yep. wolf mama comes from I think the kind of leader and and manager that I've also been in business. Yeah. Um. You can speak to most people that have reported into me. It's sort of um. I guess a combination of being <coughs> sort of fierce and nurturing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think again goes back to pack mentality in a good way that collaboration and yeah. kind of keeping things together yeah and, yeah. and what are you and, and what are you trying to do with brave what's your what's your because i guess you know the normal question you'd get is of course what's the future to you what are you like yeah. five years but actually brave is that now because it, you just set it up so yeah i mean what are you trying to you've got to be brave when you decide to set up a business during a global pandemic um <laughs> i launched it on may 11th um i mean it was obviously in within thinking like for a few months um before that the very simple mission statement is that we believe that brave people making brave decisions will change the world Mm -hmm. so um pretty simple and um my focus is actually not to work only with brands who already have taken that step um obviously I, i want to what i think the potential is collaborating with even people, but brands who want to take that step, but it's super scary because right now we, people are petrified of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. But if you don't actually just try, you'll never know. So back to, we said test and learn earlier on in the podcast, you have to be brave to step into a space that you've not been in before You have to be brave when you have to go sell it in to your C-suite and get them to understand. Because that's that's a question when I'd go to conferences. I'd get that question all the time. Oh, and this is when I was still at Tom's. It's easy for Tom's because this has been what you've done from the the beginning. It's not easy for us. Um, First of all, nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Um, But I I don't think it's as difficult as people think. And they're actually... We all travel at different speeds right Mm -hmm. depending on what we care about there's a sliding scale of how you get involved and it's also a marathon it's not a sprint so my vision is to go and work with brands for them to figure out what is their what is their sharp point of how they want to make positive impact and even if the starting point is internally and getting them to challenge their teams and how they think um because I, what I've realized 
How do you call what you do now? What about what does the new company do? I mean, it's. I mean, I'd say it's um, it's grounded in strategy, um, and I'd say sustainable strategy, like sustainability strategy. I'm way more, I'd say, versed and passionate about social sustainability. So it's more people and societal um, focused. But it's not to say that I, I don't do brand strategy either. So there are three pillars to Brave. It's um, strategy, sustainability, and storytelling. All right. So strategy can be, I can also probably, you know, will easily do really like brand-focused strategies. But my intention would be to do that, but with always with a, um, a, an eye on the sustainability um, yeah. part um, but I think it, sustainability makes a lot of people feel overwhelmed because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know it and they're scared of being judged and all these sort of things but to to really help them figure out how do you show up in that space and then the storytelling part is to help them tell that story because you've got to be smart in how you get that across mm-hmm. and empathic and intelligent um, but then also doing stuff like this because um, doing keynotes or you know I- anything like that, because yeah. um, I think there's also power in inspiring people through through those projects. Yeah. I would, you know, there are a lot of brands out there I think who are afraid of that uh, kind of that um, the the repercussion, the, the 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 feedback they get from the audience, especially yeah. in these past week or two. Yeah. You know, you've gotten a lot of brands that have gotten people say, "Hey, but what about?" Yeah. You know, or had a negative what would you say, what would be advice to them, you know, with, with all the goodwill and intention they have mm. to support, they still get that back and then they kind of get afraid. Mm. What would your advice be of how to handle that and how to go around that or how to, you know, deal with that? Well, I think the interesting thing for them to also know is brands, and I've had this conversation with the, um, it's the global lead for environmental activism at Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Brands like Patagonia and Tom's experience that kind of um rhetoric every day Mm -hmm. so it's not like oh the these brands that do good you know no one criticism left right and center you're not doing what you say you do all these sort of things so that's just a given you know it's not if the backlash comes it's when When the backlash comes comes. and how you and but the thing is the first thing don't step into something lightly know what you're talking about and if you so if we look at the last sort of weeks on black lives matter if you don't have a fully baked stance at least know what even if it's a long-term commitment at least know know where be honest about where you're at doesn't mean you can't say something but be honest about where you're at because when people come back at you that doesn't need to be a defensive conversation it can just be a conversation Mm -hmm. and you obviously on social you're not going to respond to like everybody's comments but you can't do i think where some people have gotten backlash they've potentially been a little flippant and haven't really like fully thought it through yeah think it through um and i think but equally don't be caught by surprise at moments like this if you're caught by surprise you should have been doing something a long time ago. Like, this shit is not new. No. Um, the environment, the, the planet is melting. Not new. No. You know, um, racism, not new. I was born and raised in apartheid. This shit is not new. So I think, like, figuring out... Um, and then also coming to terms with the fact that as a brand, 
you might more strongly identify with one issue and not the yeah. the other. You don't have to be on everything across everything making impacts. But if you look at how you run your company, mm-hmm. who do you bank with? Who had you know how, how diverse is your team? And I was thinking about it today. Um, diversity. Um, over the years, if I think about it, has much been much more about how many female leaders you have in your business. It actually hasn't been how many people of color do you have in your businesses. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's lots of ways for companies to to show up. So if I look at what I'd love to do with Brave, I think it, it doesn't only have to be on the marketing side or the um sort of target consumer side it could even touch into issues like hr or just you know um internal communications and internal culture but i think it's if you get if your house is in order um you're always ready yeah 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 yeah. and you you touched upon south africa and apartheid right Mm. and and how you know you went through that what how you know how do i say how does it feel? What you know, kind of going through it, but in a different way now mm. to how it was then. I mean, what were kind of like the learnings then, and how was it to go through apartheid then, and then how is it going through Black Lives Matter now? Um, I mean, a couple of things. I'm being incredibly careful of. I'm like overthinking everything right mm-hmm. now, but I'm really lucky that I have, and I, I've called her this, and she loves it. I have one black friend who's pretty militant. Um, and she's there, and obviously people of color are not there to help white people through this. Um, but I am lucky that I have a friend who I can at least bounce things off yeah. of, but we're close and we've always spoken about these things. This can is have not a the, conversation this with. Is, yeah, Jennifer. this is not the first time we're having this conversation. Yeah. Otherwise it would be very different. She'd yeah. give me heaps of shit if that was the case. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there is a lot of, um, I'd say weird guilt um, being raised um, in apartheid. I mean, because I have a very good memory, um, ridiculously good memory, and I remember everything. I remember the. I've been since I've had some time in the last few months. I've been getting back into writing poetry, and I actually wrote a poem yesterday about it. Um, mm. You know, I, I remember us housekeeper having a different cup and plate under the sink in the kitchen. I remember her having her own toilet in the backyard. Yeah. Um, I remember walking to the supermarket with the housekeeper and I went to one toilet and she went to another toilet. Um, I remember the different colored buses. Um, when I was 18, it was the first year where a black kid was in my school. So, I mean, I get goosebumps and feel quite emotional when I talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you don't... You don't know what a fucking crazy world you, you're growing up in until way after. Way after. Yeah. Um, and I'd say the interesting thing is my siblings and I are all, I'd say, more liberal. My parents were, I'd say, closeted racists. I don't think they would term themselves as that, but they, they were. People were treated in, like significantly differently. Yeah. Um, the first time I voted was the first democratic election of South Africa. And I stood in line for four hours with Joyce, who um, works for my mom and my sister. And she has her little house on my sister's property still. We're still very close. Um, Joyce is seven years older than me, um, or is seven years older than me. Um, 
and we stood there together that day um, and it was incredible um, so having been through that also having grown up in you know remembering sanctions in South Africa so we weren't allowed to take part in international sports mm. lots of banks you know withdrew lots of businesses withdrew um, that makes me super angry about what's happening now because as a human race, what lessons do we have to learn before we start getting it right? Mm. Um, and why I'm the, the reason I get angry is why has the international community been so quiet about what's going on in the US? Um, and when I think about it, I think sanctions on South Africa was entirely needed. I, I don't challenge that at all. Um, when, when something really has to change and it isn't changing and it's it's really wrong. I fully support that. But then I think back on it now and I think, but South Africa's small fry as far as how much money people make out of it. Yeah. How much did people lose by pulling out of South Africa and, and applying sanctions to them? How much would people lose if they applied sanctions to the United States? How is their history okay? Yeah. And we're not talking about... Okay, I mean, South Africa was founded in 1652, um, so there's probably been slavery and you know oppression since then. Um, roughly same time frame for the US. Um, so how after 400 years and the, um, I mean, I just watched a documentary on Netflix called The Thirteenth, where you basically see slavery was just um, replaced by incarceration, and yes. it's devastating. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. a lot of stuff that I didn't know before. Yeah. And it gets me super fired up yeah. because I'm like, how do they, how do they get away with it? How, like, as a, I mean, don't even get me started as being a woman with someone like Trump in the presidency. I mean, that just, I literally will spontaneously burst into flames. Um, but I just think seeing how, po pos how do I put it, positive pressure or just pressure to get something to change um, I know the United States is supposed to be massive and all powerful, but I just I can't see how they get away with it. Yeah, but that that's kind of like leaves me a little bit stunned. Yeah, but yeah, let's hope that this is a start. Fin oh, I mean, it's, finally, I, I finally, think and, it doesn't, is, and like you shift. said, it doesn't go back to you know like yeah. previously you've had this and it kind of died down. Yeah. But now I hope you know, especially with the pandemic on top of that, it's actually well, the world amplified it. The, the world is engaged. So yeah. when I say the international community, I mean other politicians, other leaders. Mm -hmm. The rest individually, there are so many. It's the biggest civil rights movement that's ever happened yeah. um, on this on this topic. So I, I am I'm pissed, but I'm also very optimistic yeah. because at times there's a saying: um, never doubt that a small group of concerned citizens can change the world. Because after all, it's the only thing that ever did. Mm. And I think that's kind of what we've got to connect ourselves with right now. Yeah. So. Good. Yeah. I kind of want to end on that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good time. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's a good one. So, you know, I, I want to end on that and end on, you know, the positivity of where the world is going. And, 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 and I really hope that you can, you know, even if how small it is, actually help some brands get there and help them also go down that road of, of positivity and change. So. Yeah, me thank, too. Thank you very much for this talk. Thanks for having joining me. Us. Thank you very much. And, and I think you the other last thing. Anything else? No, nothing else.
Thank the last note is I think I'm going to give non-alcoholic red wine a miss. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, well, <laughs> one more thing. I finished my glass, but you guys didn't. So that's <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. I'm like, nah, it's cool. I'll just, I'll wait until January for a glass of beer last. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you so much, no. guys. It's been great. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Lisa.